Welcome back to Mux Madness. Oh, we're doing it again. Doing we're doing it again. Doing it again. Yeah. All right. And this being the second recording of the session, there are no corrections to go over oh at the time. Oh, my God. I know. It's nice, right? Yes, it's nice. Yes, yes, uh, For those of you following along, we are in the bottom of page 210, second to last paragraph. Let us go further. Let us go further. Perhaps this passionate research and this anger are kept up at least directed by the secret hope of discovering beyond the misery of today, beyond self-contempt, resignation, and abjuration. Some very beautiful and splendid era whose existence rehabilitates us, both in regard to ourselves and in regard to others. I have said that I have decided to go further. Perhaps unconsciously, the native intellectuals, since they could not stand wonderstruck before the history of today's barbarity, decided to back further and to delve deeper down. And let us make no mistake, it was with the greatest delight that they discovered that there was nothing to be ashamed of in the past, but rather dignity, glory, and solemnity. The claim to a national, I will have you never yawn while I'm reading you. Sorry. I, yeah, you. The claim to a national culture in the past is not only rehabilitate the nation and serve as a justification for the hope of a future national culture. In the sphere of psycho-effective equilibrium, oh guys, we are getting to the fun words. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it is responsible for an important change in the native. Perhaps we have not sufficiently demonstrated that colonialism is not simply content to impose its rule upon the present and the future of a dominated country. Colonialism is not satisfied merely with holding a people in its grip and by emptying the native's brain of all form and content. By a kind of perverted logic, it turns to the past of the oppressed peoples, distorts and disfigures and destroys it. This work of devaluing pre-colonial history takes on a dialectical significance today. Ooh, and now we're getting to dialectics. Yes, yes, yes. When we consider the efforts made to carry out the cultural estrangement so characteristic of the colonial epoch, we realize that nothing has been left to chance, and the total result looked for by colonial domination was indeed to convince the natives that colonialism came to lighten their darkness. The effect consciously sought by colonialism was to drive into the natives' heads the idea that if the settlers were to leave, they would at once fall back into barbarism, degradation, and bestiality. Whoa! Yeah, I know that's important. You know, I mean, don't be them savages. This is your horrible history. Yet, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of miseducation, and that's exactly why. It's not only to to push fervent racism by white people to scare them into to their own thi- you know things and yeah I mean he they, he did include the word bestiality there. I think he's probably using that differently yeah uh, like, uh, like more, being a beast yeah on the unconscious plane colonialism therefore did not seek to be considered by the native as a gentle loving mother who protects her child from a hostile environment but rather as a mother who unceasingly restrains her fundamentally perverse offspring from managing to commit suicide and from giving free reign to its evil instincts. The colonial mother protects her child from itself, from its ego, from its physiology, its biology, and its own unhappiness, which is its very essence. You that, think the person who wrote Mother Gothel and Tangled like, had just read Fanon? And- <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe. <laughs> In such a situation, the claims of the native intellectual are not a luxury, but a necessity. In any coherent program. The native intellectual who takes up arms to defend his nation's legitimacy and who wants to bring proofs to bear out that legitimacy, who is willing to strip himself naked to the study of history of his body, is obliged to dissect the heart of his people. Such an examination is not specifically national. The native intellectual who decides to give battle to, colon- to col- colonial lies 
fights on the field of the whole continent. The past is given back its value. Culture extracted from the past to be displayed in all its splendor is not necessarily that of his own country. Colonialism, which has not bothered to put too fine a point on its efforts, has never ceased to maintain that the Negro is a savage. And for the colonialist, the Negro was neither an Angolan nor a Nigerian, for he simply spoke of the Negro. I do realize that we made a hard decision uh, after reading Black Bolshevik um, yeah. and doing it, that we were... Um, we're still going to avoid the, the really, really bad we're gonna, words. We are going to... I, I, I'm but it, it is hard to read black revolutionaries and, and not... And, and obviously, we don't want to use the term excessively or no. too much in discussion. But since we're... we're I'm not going to use it in any context it. that is not specifically Fanon, his own words. Yeah, but other than you know admitting that we are reading the word like I'm doing now or actually reading the word, I think we're just going to have to be okay with saying Negro or... It's going to be too too yeah, it, from the it, context. It's starting to get yeah, it was starting to get a little bit cumbersome there. So yeah, apologies, yeah. and if someone is and very the, very the, offended, the let bad us know. one will just say like slur. Or, yeah, 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 yeah. Or we can yeah, we yeah. we we can say n word. That's a yeah. thing. But this so again just. But I think there is a distinction of if I just said n word every single time, there is there is a difference in how Fanon was sure sure. Yeah. Well, and he also he also uses capital N Negro, and he keeps the other one. You know exactly as, as the lowercase uh, slur. It is. It is okay. So again, if anyone's if anyone is, finds that objectionable. Please let me know. Um, if not, yeah, we're going to continue. Mean, we, this is obviously not an easy decision. We've been back and forth on it multiple yes, times. We've, yeah, we, we've kind of slipped back yeah. and forth, and this is where we've settled. So again, if we're wrong, tell us. Yeah. Um, for colonialism, this vast continent was the haunt of savages, a country riddled with superstitions and fanaticism, destined for contempt, weighed down by the curse of God, a country of cannibals. In short, the Negro's country. Colonialism's condemnation is continental in its scope. The contention by colonialism that the darkest night of humanity lay over pre-colonial history's concerns, the whole of the African continent. The efforts of the native to rehabilitate himself and to escape from the claws of colonialism are logistically inscribed from the same point of view that of colonialism. The native intellectual who has gone far beyond the domains of Western culture and who has got it into his head to proclaim the existence of another culture never does so in the name of Angola or of Dom, Domoni? Domi. Domi? Yeah. The culture which is affirmed is African culture. The, the Negro never so much a Negro as since he has been dominated by the whites when he decides to prove that he has a culture and to behave like a cultured person, comes to realize that history points out a well-defined path to him. He must demonstrate that a Negro culture exists. And this you get into, this is really interesting, um, because that's that's a direct tie over to what uh, Haywood was talking about in Mm -hmm. the national question. That was a huge point of contention when they were trying to determine the, the national question in the United States of is... Are, are, are black people in America a oppressed subgroup or are they a distinct national, you know, na- nation group within a nation? Absolutely. Um, and, and was there a distinct culture there was, a, was a sticking point, you know, well, yeah. does it need a different language? Does it need this? Does it need that? Yeah. Um, so that, and, that's, and we talked about not only, you know, just cause Haywood said it was correct, but we talked about how it very much is, you know. Well, yeah, no. And, and, and I, we don't, when I when we say Haywood said it, that, that came as a result of, of numerous, you know, intense theological, you know, theory debates and, and practical discussion and on the ground, you know, work. Yeah. I mean, it was not a, a, a oh, we it just wasn't kinda... even originally Haywood's belief. Exactly. That's the thing is this was a this was a long, you know, this was a line that was come to over years and years and years of analysis. Yeah. 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 Um, so I thought that I just thought that was interesting. No. Yeah. And it is only too true that those who are most responsible for this radicalization 
racialization of thought. Yeah, it's important there. Or at least for the first movement toward that thought are and remain those Europeans who have never ceased to set up white culture to fill the gap left by the absence of other cultures. God, where have we seen that? (laughs) Colonialism did not dream of wasting its time in denying the existence of one national culture after another. Therefore, the reply of the colonized people will be straight away continental in its breadth. In Africa, the native literature of the last 20 years is not a national literature, but a Negro literature. Mm -hmm. The concept of negritude, for example, was the emotional, if not the logical antithesis of that insult which the white man flung at humanity. This rush of negritude against the white man's contempt shown itself in certain spheres to be the one idea capable of lifting intradictions and anathemas. Good God. (laughs) Because the New Guinean or Kenyan intellectuals found themselves above all up against a general ostracism and delivered to the combined contempt of their overlords, their reaction was to sing praises and admiration of each other. The unconditional affirmation of African culture has succeeded the unconditional affirmation of European culture. On the whole, the poets of negritude opposed the idea of an old Europe to a young Africa. Tiresome reasoning to lyricism, oppressive logic to high-stepping nature, and on one side, stiffness, ceremony, etiquette, and skepticism, while on the other, frankness, liveliness, liberty, and why not, luxuriance, but also irresponsibility. Mm-hmm. The poets of negritude will not stop at the limits of the continent. From America, black voices will take up the hymn with fuller unison. The black world will see the light from see the light and Busia from Ghana, Barago Diop from Senegal, Hampate Ba from the Sudan, and St. Clair Drake from Chicago will not hesitate to assert the existence of common ties and a motive power that is identical. The example of the Arab world might equally well be quoted here. We know that the majority of Arab territories have been under colonial domination. Colonialism has made the same effort in these regions to plant deep in the minds of the native population the idea that before the advent of colonialism, their history was one which was dominated by barbarism. We literally just talked about this. Yes. <laughs> literally just talked about this last episode. Uh, the struggle for national liberty has been accompanied by a cultural phenomenon known by the name of the Awakening of Islam. The passion with which contemporary Arab writers remind their people of the great pages of their history is a reply to the lies told by the occupying power. The great names of Arabic literature and the great past of Arab civilization has been brandished about with the same ardor as those of the African civilizations. The Arab leaders have tried to return to the famous Dar al-Islam, which shone so brightly from the 12th to the 14th century. Today, in the political sphere, the Arab League is giving palpable form to this will to take up again the heritage of the past and to bring it to culmination. Today, Arab doctors and Arab poets speak to each other across the frontiers and strive to create a new Arab culture and a new Arab civilization. It is in the name of Arabism that these men join together and that they try to think together. Everywhere, however, in the Arab world, national feeling has preserved, even under colonial domination, a liveliness that we fail to find in Africa. At the same time that spontaneous 
Com- communion. Com- Good Lord. That just looks not like how that word should be spelled. Of each other with all. Trust the Catholic. It's communion. I, I, no, I'm about to say. That's why I deferred. Uh, present in the African movement is not to be found in the Arab League. On the contrary, paradoxically, everyone tries to sing the praises of the achievements of his nation. The cultural process is freed from the indifferentiation which characterized it in the African world. But the Arabs do not always manage to stand aside in order to achieve their aims. The living culture is not national, but Arab. The problem is not as yet to secure a national culture, not as yet to lay hold of a movement differentiated by nations, but to assume an African or Arabic culture when confronted by the all-embracing condemnation pronounced by the dominating power. In the African world, as in the Arab, we see that the claims of the man of culture in a colonized country are all-embracing, continental, and in the case of the Arabs, worldwide. And, and I mean, you can see that today. Oh, yeah. What, yeah. I mean, what Islamophobia I mean, puts people up against, you know, look at the Islamophobia dripping out of the West for oh. all the all the false accusations we send at at China. I mean, what the hell is the war on terror? You know, what the hell is uh, Guantanamo Bay got going on right now? It's it's something that's a mass. So watch. Look at Europe. Look at all the, the yeah, European anti-immigrant movements right now. That's a huge Islamophobia in them. Well, and and more so even and the one the one that fl- you know what you've had it too good for too long, Australia. I'm gonna come yeah. fucking bring you to tail too. Yeah, Christchurch. Oh, yeah. not even that. Their uh, their levels of uh, their conservatives. Yeah, give our conservatives a run for their money, if not surpass them in a lot of ways. Um, the the the, the Australians have been doing some. F- phenomenally impressive work in uh in just wild unfounded uh racism uh anti-immigrant stance islamophobia i mean they they really really do um mm-hmm. they fly under the radar what with their backwards toilets and their kangaroos but no i see you australia <laughs> i see your shit australia and i call I, i'll call you to task on it um also though in i as i as i shit on them mm-hmm. someone had pointed it out the the other day in a chat and i'm not going to be able to find it now so i don't know why i'm going to try but i'm going to try and, and round the numbers but basically it was the for for context on we all know australia's on fire right now it's fire season in Australia. Oh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's very yeah, hot yeah. down there. Yeah, um, they're they're having all their hottest days in history, right. uh, back to back to back. Um, the California wildfires were something like nine hundred thousand or ninety thousand hectare acres or something like that sure. burned. Uh, or no, I think they were like a hundred thousand hectare acres burned, and then and like the Amazon, like- the Amazon was like ninety thousand, like nine hundred thousand hectare acres yeah. were on fire at one yeah. time. Thanks, Bolsonaro, you fat uh-huh. shit. Yeah. Australia's up to like three billion hectare acres Jesus or something Christ. like that. Or three million hectare acres. I think it's three million hectare. Yeah, it was nine hundred thousand in the Amazon. It's three million so far in Australia, and they are still going like oh, strong. Holy banana! That whole country is on fire, and it yeah, is a no it, shit. Jesus. So again, pay attention. I mean, obviously, it's not going to do anything, but that is that is one of the direct. Uh, if there is one spark event that you can think of that is going to kickstart our version of the revolution uh the climate crisis is absolutely 
yeah. one of the more obvious ones, I would think, because the diaspora. Oh, sure. Well, no, it's something very important, too, because this was and, and again, you know, I mean, we get in this thing where uh, and if you want to vote for Bernie and your your situation, it's not going to work very well. But I, I get the notion. Fine. You know, <laughs> uh, I'm not going to tell you not to. Yeah. But, y- yes. No, we're not going to tell you not to. We're all. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, I get it. People got to eat. Uh, we've been talking about that a lot. Uh, but, you know, when a lot of times when he gets shat on, you've got to decide, you know, am I defending someone who's just another soaked dem imperialist that's not even that good against uh, among soaked dems? There we go. And well, uh, hold on. Which so, which soaked dems are beating him? I'm confused. Wait, Corbin. Well, yeah. OK. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> how'd, how'd that work out? Um, yeah. Well, um, and then. You know, the other times is when we're defending them because people really are are fighting the ideas he's espousing or anyone left of themselves. And so there was some disingenuous, um, you know, centrists uh, that were trying. Wait, centrists are just being disingenuous? (laughs) I don't believe it. Uh, That were trying to get on his case uh, because there was discussions of racism and it was to taking off the section, uh, taking off the discussion from climate change and climate change. Change uh, primarily yes. hits people of color. Uh, I mean, globally and, and domestically. I mean, that's who it affects the most. Yeah. And he said, "Look, let's let's finish talking about the climate change for a minute." And he tied it all back together of how the first people yeah. in line to die are people of color, which is something we should know and we should be espousing and saying before Sanders said it. We don't need him to say it first, no. but good on him for well, saying that. Yeah. And and you know. I mean, again, you know, climate change is not this is where we talked about, you know, we essentially have a trident of issues with um, I like that. It could have been a stool, but you've made it a trident. It's a trident. Of it's issues. a trident because like, we are merfolk warriors here <laughs> to take back to take back the waters. God I damn it. like this. All uh, right. But All we, right. Have, we have a trident of issues with, you know, anti-imperialism um, and, and uh, decolonizing, you know, our home country as a decolonial movement and, you know, the collapse of, of class, you know, the, the overturning to a dictatorship, the proletariat. And we're fighting them all and they're all separate battles that are each individually important without the other two, uh, but they all intertwine so much. And so when you're fighting against racism and fighting for decolonization, uh, you know, I mean, something else, of course, you notice is, is places where indigenous populations are in control of the land, the carbon footprint is minute. I mean, it, the, the environment is much more sustainable uh, than when, you know, you have a settler colony, right? Oh, my God. I, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's yeah. silly. It's, but that, yeah. yeah, it should go without saying, but yeah. also there is empirical evidence to show that, too. Uh, so, I mean, these are all things that that tie together. You know, you give back people people of color, the, and not in a token way, like, oh, you know, elect Barack Obama and Cory Booker and do it, but uh, you know, you give back to the, the native populations these lands. It's yeah. just... It's uh, Ford's decolonization, anti-imperialism. We've talked about that here in this book with Fanon. I'm sorry. I yeah, won't do I was again. about to say, every, everybody who just got a nice boong noise in their ear, thank David, don't, don't uh, yell at me. I can't stop him. Uh, anyway, um, but, you know, also the, those are things that, that tie together. That's going to help fight the climate change. And, of course, it's going to help uh, collapse class and break down capitalism. So these are all fights that help each other. And we should be fighting them all passionately on individual basis, both on their own merit 
and how they they tie together. Yeah, I love, and that's just speaking on the the native populations. You know, the, you know, more sustainable on the land. I think it was just funny because again, you get this concept of oh, well, they were savages, so we you know we needed mm-hmm. to come in with our technology and show them the right way. Well, they can't they can't do medicine, and, and we'll just go mm-hmm. backwards. If you if you believe mm-hmm. in in decolonization, you're a uh, 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 what do you call it? Um, primitivist. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've seen that a lot lately. Where there, the, it's like this concept, which of, is you such a huge load of bullshit. It just seems so. What do you mean you can't conceptualize giving land? But like, well, huh? What's wrong? Stop it! Yeah. Shut up! Get out of here! Um, but it, it was no. It was you know. To I, I wanted to send like an open letter to the people of North Face, and uh, all because they, there was a there was an article that came out that basically said that they found scientists found that the most single most effective cold weather attire. In yeah. human history that's ever been conceived that anyone's ever come up with was the Inuit was what the Inuit came up with as their yeah. na- natural attire. Like that, that, that clothing is the most mm-hmm. effective form of prevention of cold and, and mobility. And why not? They did that for survival. Exactly. You know? But again, it's, it's just funny. But you'll see a lot of like, uh, I mean, well, something that, that's been talked about a lot lately because, uh, you know, fighting the, the 30 foot telescope yep. on Mount Akea is, uh, this battle or this, this positioning in media of like, you know, the natives and it's going back to, to the savagery and the uncivilized cultures and the backwards people that we talk about here, the dehumanized people, uh, even though it's not made to be explicit. But it's it's indigenous activists, indigenous movements yeah. versus science. Yeah, I thought which is such a crock of shit. That was the one time I and I wish God, I, I regret being as night and i don't think again there would have been nothing i could have done as a white guy walking in in that situation anyway mm-hmm. but that was one the when i went because I, I went to hawaii one mm-hmm. time uh and that it was the only time in my life that i ever i ever recognized what it would have been like to be to have been a, a the minority group at a proper like yeah. i was not the predominant like white i was in the minority being a white dude walking around and especially when we went to because we did we tried to stay off of the touristy shit to begin with yeah so we were in like if it was like going to town it's like all right you can go into this town but you probably shouldn't go over there because they don't like white people all that much and in i was i was still like a but i was still far enough along where i was like no, that absolutely tracks. That absolutely makes sense. Like, fuck, <laughs> fuck, why? I agree. Like, can I wear a shirt that says fuck whitey? Cause like, I, I agree with that sentiment. I don't, I don't like this. Yeah. Like, I'm not a fan of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, it is it, it just, and that, but that was another group that was the most I'd ever been exposed to direct because we've talked about Hawaii on this podcast before, but just the level of colonization that happened mm-hmm. there and the amount of, that they're not their their culture is basically turned into a caricature for tourist per population. I mean, it is just fucking obscene. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, and it is gross to think about now. Mm-hmm. Also, it's a very long plane ride. Um, <laughs> just just from an environmental Never standpoint, <laughs> from an environmental standpoint, I don't I don't recommend it. Um, just take a boat if you want to take a boat. Get a boat. Go boating. Go rowing. Go, go rowing. Go. It's go, only across the Pacific Ocean. I don't, I don't necessarily go say go rowing. I mean, maybe we can get some <laughs> get some get some hydroplane and you know, so I don't know. I don't get yourself a job boat. Get, Sla- get that motor going. I got. I got. <laughs> all right. All right. On that boat note. The historical necessity in which the men of Africa, African culture, find themselves to racialize their claims and to speak more of African culture than of national culture will tend to lead them up a blind alley. Let us take, for example, the case of the African Cultural Society. 
This society has been created by African intellectuals who wish to get to know each other and to compare their experiences and the results of their respective research work. The aim for this society was therefore to affirm the existence of an African culture, to evaluate this culture on the plane of distinct nations, and to reveal the internal motive forces of each of their national cultures. But at the same time, this society fulfilled another need. The need to exist side by side with the European cultural society, which threatened to transform itself into a universal cultural society. There was therefore at the bottom of this decision, the anxiety to be present at the universal trysting. What the fuck is that even mean? At the universal trysting place, fully armed with a culture springing from the very heart of the African continent. Now, this society will very quickly show its inability to shoulder these different tasks and will limit itself to exhibitionist demonstrations, while the habitual behavior of the members of this society will be confined to showing Europeans that such a thing as African culture exists and opposing their ideas to those of ostentatious and narcissistic Europeans. What? We have shown that such an attitude is normal and draws its legitimacy from the lies propagated by men of Western culture. But the degradation of the aims of this society will become more marked with the elaboration of the concept of negritude. The African society will become the cultural society of the black world and will come to include the Negro dispersion. Mm-hmm. That is to say, the tens of thousands of black people spread over the American continents. Yeah. So now Fanon's starting to get into like, okay, you know, there was a purpose for this, you know, disillusioning this, this, uh, fighting back against these uncivilized backwards people, savage narratives. But once the information's out there, uh, to renovate a national culture, it kind of loses its purpose, you know, and, and also you notice when he talked about, uh, pan Arabism and, and, you know, in Africans and black people across uh, the world seeing themselves as in the same, that was in relation to the struggle. That was in relation to a construct from whiteness. And he said, uh, that at the beginning that that was necessary. So you can see how he's got some phases here and phase one's already starting to break down. It's also interesting the language. Uh, he talks about uh, because he said that such an attitude was normal, right? And that makes me feel a little bit uh, like he takes the same vein as Lenin did with left-wing communism. I just think about that on, on a parallel plane, like left-wing communism and infantile disorder. He talked about left-wing communism of like, you know, Rosa Luxemburg and the Spartacist League um, being an understandable reaction to opportunism and right deviation. Uh, so mm-hmm. now you're seeing this in the same kind of vein. It's like, oh, this is understandable because the white people are calling you backwards and savage and, and incapable and they're, they're making up these horrible lies around you of course you want to disseminate that but it's not going to take you to a national culture these are its limitations no i can absolutely see that that's now that you you lay it out there that's yeah because i think that and that's always a good it's a dangerous line to cross because you don't want to yeah i know and sometimes i think in an overly analogous way or i overconnect things no i'm not even saying that i'm just saying that 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 the way that's received there are so like for me left-wing communism and infantile disorder is like a fuck yeah book like it's a oh yes but it also is inherently factional so there's a group of people that are every single time going to react Sure. And that, do we want to get factional with, you know, anti-racism and big yeah, stuff? Yeah, and it's hard. Yeah. And I think, but I think that's a, I think that's a valid. I'm, I'm starting to again the <laughs> everything. Well, I, I, what I'm trying to say with this parallel no, 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 is, no. is no, I'm dragging. I'm, I'm. By the way, for the record, I'm absolutely dragging you off of this paragraph. Your analysis of the paragraph was good. This is now getting into a. 
uh, uh, sure, sure. Analysis I, I want to be clear about about my 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 analysis is is not necessarily pro factionalism or to reduce you know decolonial struggles to always the same as as you know communist struggles just because they go hand in hand. Uh, what I'm trying to to say is that when you take a materialist analysis of these struggles of these fights against power and of flipping the power, you know, a decolonial struggle, a dictatorship of the proletariat, those kind of things, you're going to notice the same kind of truths in similar battles and you're going to notice the results of materials mindset are going to of course fight much harder and not have much understanding being very angry about you know counter-revolutionary deviations and opportunist deviations and you're going to have understandings of things that are too far uh quote-unquote left or or, you know uh, but you're going to know that they come from a good place. They're just you yes. have some shortcomings. And that's that I think is the hardest line. That's the hard line to ride because it, that they it, come from a good place. But you don't want to sink us all in that understanding. So well, how do you, the, how do you incorporate you, that in a positive Anytime fashion? you try and tell someone, I think you're coming from a good place, but you're wrong. It comes off very like at super the worst, condescending. Yeah. At the worst paternalistic and at you know, and normally just super condescending. So yeah, yeah. it's a fine line. Again, Lennon wrote that. Lennon knew what he was. Lennon was a poster, baby. Lennon was a tweet. Lennon, Lennon was out there. <laughs> Lennon was out there with the people. And well, I don't think Fanon's been anything short of that. You well, know? he is now. <laughs> Fanon goes back and forth. Fanon puts on she his profe- Fanon puts on his professional hat and does his professional psychology thing, and then he takes it off and puts on his Lennon mask. He does and does dunks and, uh, and he, sweet moves. He does. Chapter one was very much in that 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 uh, Sartre style, you know, crude and 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 oh, making yeah. you feel it in your bones of like you know how wrong and grotesque you are and then and then in the end of chapter three he was in those Lennon style barbs and in between it was was you know kind of this this very sterile sterile analysis yeah. I do forget that because it's been six months it feels like yeah since yeah we've taken one. a bit yeah it's, it's, it, that's the most important part of this damn book uh huh <laughs> no big deal. <laughs> All right. The Negroes who live in the United States and in Central or Latin America, in fact, experience the need to attach themselves to a cultural matrix. Whoa. All right. Morpheus is getting in here now, boys. (laughs) Their problem is not fundamentally different from that of the Africans. The whites of America did not met out to them any different treatment from that of the whites who ruled over the Africans. We have seen that the whites were used to putting all the Negroes in the same bag. During the first Congress of the African Cultural Society, which was held in Paris in 1956, the American Negroes grows of their own accord considered their problems from the same standpoint as of those of their African brothers. Cultured Africans, speaking of African civilizations, decreed that there should be a reasonable status within the state for those who had formerly been slaves. But little by little, the American Negroes realized that the essential problems confronting them were not the same as those that confronted the African Negroes. The Negroes of Chicago only resemble the Nigerians or the Tanganyikans insofar as they were all defined in relation to the whites. But once the first comparisons had been made and subjective feelings were assuaged, the American Negroes realized that the objective problems were fundamentally heterogeneous. The test cases of civil liberty, whereby both whites and blacks in America try to draw Drive black racial discrimination, drive back racial discrimination, mm-hmm. have very little in common in their principles and objectives with the heroic fight of the Angolan people against the detestable Portuguese colonialism. Thus, the Second Congress of the African Cultural Society, the American Negroes, decided to create an American society for people of black cultures. And I think that's perfectly encapsulated right there. That yeah. is that it is it, again. It is what it is, but it, 
these are different. These are different matters. Yes. Yeah, is your struggle important? Absolutely. Is it the same as ours? No. Yeah. And again, you know, I mean, we want global decolonization and we want global uh, communism, but we don't use the term global very often. We talk about internationalism inter- because these are distinct st- struggles and we have to respect how we have solidarity we're in this together and in the end you know we want to break apart all these divisions but we also are living within these material conditions and each one of these battles is distinct and we have to respect that that's why we use the term solidarity rather than saying it's the same struggle that's why you know we don't just just like you don't want to be a class reductionist you don't want to be reductionist in a chauvinistic fashion to your own situation or try to make every situation universal again this is this is why we you know, I, I keep repeating it, but we keep saying the word solidarity and internationalism because everything is distinct, even if it's on the same plane and in the same direction. And that brings me that brings back to something that's completely unrelated, but it just tied it back. You know, we don't want to make everything universal. Right. Um, I think that kind of takes me back to the thing that struck me the hardest about that person that told me that they were a when I when we were trying to talk, you know, well, OK, well, what's your political, ten, you know, what's your what's your ideology? What's your sure. tendency? What do you stand by? Lenin Leninist Bolshevism. And it's like. You do realize that was a like the concept that Leninism is Marxism applied in the Russian situation. We we acknowledge that that is not correct. That that, that Lenin provided distinct advances in Marxism, Leninism. But to say that your entire ideology is Leninist Bolshevism, what what the fuck would that look like in America? What the what the fuck? That that's not a universalized little thing. That's not something that works in all situations. Yeah, like don't get me wrong. I'd be very happy with the USSA. And even if we do the correct thing and, and go full decolonial struggle with you know a black nation and then the rest of all the indigenous nations, really the USSR was a bunch of independent nations that came together and centralized for economic and defensive reasons. And yes. that could happen again. That said, our goal should not be a USSA as much as, as beautiful as that Langston Hughes poem was. But even if it, no, 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 no. Give it that. Let it be the USSA. Let it be that we 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 create a autonomous uh an autonomous Afri- you know the black belt becomes an autonomous African American uh, self determination region mm-hmm. and then the Northwest we fucking kick all the white supremacists out of the Northwest and give the the entire Northwest uh, passage back to uh, indigenous people and and then redistribute indigenous lands back to where they're supposed to. It's still not going to be fucking Russian Leninist Bolshevism in America. We don't have the same fucking material conditions in any meaningful way. We don't have a peasant class. We don't have, we're hype with the most hyper industrialized country in the world. We've been doing imperialism for a hundred so years. We're just not anything close to the same. So to say that that is your ideology as a person living in the United States, that's, it is me. It is utopian on the point of meaninglessness. It's role playing. You're LARPing an ideology and that's not helpful. Well, that's exactly what I was talking about uh, when we were talking about revisionism in the last episode and the, the definition of revisionism and people seeing Asian struggles like that. They think they're the same as the USSR and the USSR did it without, you know, doing a mixed economy and swinging in some liberalism, backing it out when the USSR brought in liberalism it led to the collapse of ussr and they had to you know lie and go back on their own theory that doesn't mean that's what happened in other countries that doesn't mean a liberal deviation isn't part of the analysis of material conditions and a construct towards communism in those countries or a simple survival adaptation even if it is a right deviation it's not the same as revisionism yeah it's it's just it's it's just wild to me that if you're not and again that's why i'm getting more and more when i'm talking to people that's i've I've started because we you engage with people that are just shooting memes and it's like okay mm-hmm. so what's your what's your what's your bedrock what's your yeah. what's your thing you're working from yeah and I run into 
and again, one one of two things. It's it's people like that that are like you. You are literally just so far gone theory larping no. that you're you're not a rabbit. And I get, but I get that. If yeah. your entire job, if your entire lived experience right now is you study Russian history, well then yeah. And yeah. you're also a communist. Well, fuck yeah. You're going to have a hard on for Lenin. You're going to think Lenin's the best and you're going to, that's the thing you're going to subscribe to. But that's not realistic. That's not practical. No, that's not, re- that's not a, that's not a fun a thing you can move forward with and, and, and act on. We, we talked about it multiple times in this book because this book is about Africa, right? It is. It's, uh, redistribu- it's what I've been told. Redistribution of land in South Africa going on right now, taking away from whites, giving it back to the native, uh, you know, Africans that live there. Um, the way, you know, Robert Mugabe did that in, uh, uh, Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe, thank you. Uh, <laughs> I, I, every once in a while, I got you on this. Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, this is something that it, it's a different struggle in each situation, and you're going to have to adapt it for your situation to meet your material needs. And, you know, you're facing different economic realities. You're facing different histories. You're facing the same enemies, but different combinations of strengths and resources and focus from those enemies. So it's really, to some degree, different enemies, even though they're all the same. Sorry, I will I, not touch things. I'm, I'm, I talk I'm, with my hands a lot. I was about to say, I'm going to put David in a straight jacket and make him record. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, but <laughs> as good a transition point as anyway. Yeah. Negritude, therefore, finds its limitations in the phenomenon which take account of the formation of the historical character of men. Negro and African Negro culture broke up into different entities because the men who wish to incarnate these cultures realize that every culture is first and foremost national and that the problems which had kept Richard Wright or Langston Hughes. Hey, well, welcome back. Langston, yeah. On the alert were fundamentally different from those which might confront Leopold Senghor or Jomo Kenyatta. In the same way, certain Arab states, though they had chanted the marvelous hymn of the Arab Renaissance, had nevertheless to realize that their geographical position and the economic ties of their region were stronger even than the past that they had that they had wished to revive. Thus, we find today Arab states organically linked more and more with societies which are Mediterranean in their culture. The fact is that these states are submitted to modern pressure and to new channels of trade, while the network of trade relations, which was dominant during the great period of the Arab history, has disappeared. But above all, there is the fact that the political regimes of certain Arab states are so different and so far away from each other in their conceptions that even a cultural meeting between these states is meaningless. Thus, we see that the cultural problem, as it sometimes exists in colonized countries, runs the risk of giving rise to serious ambiguities. The lack of culture of the Negroes, as proclaimed by colonialism, and the inherent barbarity of the Arabs ought to logically lead to the exhalation of cultural manifestations which are not simply national, but continental and extremely racial. In Africa, the movement of men of culture is a movement toward the Negro African culture or the Arab Muslim culture. It is not specifically toward a national culture. Culture, it is becoming more and more cut off from the events of today. It finds its refuge beside a hearth that glows with passionate emotion and from there makes its way by realistic paths, which are the only means by which it may be made fruitful, homogenous and consistent. If the action of the native intellectual is limited historically, there remains, nevertheless, the fact that it contributes greatly to upholding and justifying the action of politicians. 
It is true that the attitude of the native intellectual sometimes takes on the aspect of a cult or of a religion. But if we really wish to analyze this attitude correctly, we will come to see that it is symptomatic of the intellectual's realization of the danger that he is running in, cutting his last moorings, and of breaking adrift from his people. This stated belief in a national culture is, in fact, an ardent, despairing turning towards anything that will afford him secure anchorage. In order to ensure that his salvation and to escape from the supremacy of the white man's culture, the native feels the need to turn backward toward his unknown roots and to lose himself at whatever cost in his own barbarous people. Because he feels he is becoming estranged, that is to say, because he feels that he is living the living haunt of contradictions which run the risk of becoming insurmountable, the native tears himself away from the swamp that may suck him down and accepts everything, decides to take all for granted and confirms everything even though he may lose body and soul. The native finds that he's expected to answer for everything and to all comers. He not only turns himself into the defender of his people's past, he is willing to be counted as one of them and henceforward he is even capable of laughing at his past cowardice. Yeah, I mean, he's not afraid to be wrong. He's not trying to nuance and get just the right views. He's not trying to go down in history as the guy that will never be shamed. He is defending his people. He knows what he's doing is right. He believes the facts he says is right, and he knows if a fact is wrong, it's wrong in defense of his people. So what he is doing is still on the right side. Yep. This tearing away, painful and difficult though it may be, is, however, necessary. It is not accomplished. If it is not accomplished, there will be serious psycho-effective injuries, and the result will be individuals without an anchor, without a horizon, colorless, stateless, rootless, a race of angels. It will be also quite normal to hear certain natives declare, I speak as a Senegalese and as a Frenchman. I speak as an Algerian and as a Frenchman. The intellectual who is Arab and French or Nigerian and English, when he comes up against the need to take on two nationalities, chooses, if he wants to remain true to himself, the negation of one of those of these determinations. But most often, since they cannot or will not make a choice, such intellectuals gather together all the historical determining factors which have conditioned them to, to and take up a fundamentally universal standpoint. Again, we talk about don't, yeah. don't universalize shit. Yeah, and this is – I mean it gets a little confusing here because he's not clear. He's talking about two different paths they can take, a fork in the road. They can start straddle, you know, being a Frenchman and, and an Algerian uh, or they can just completely – go full defense of their people and cut ties with their beliefs in the Frenchman. And then again, they're only anchored to their people. So, you know, people cannot be true to themselves and straddle both sides of this colonial line. Yeah. This is because the native intellectual has thrown himself greedily upon Western culture. Like adopted children who only stop investigating the new family framework at the moment when a minimum nucleus of security crystallizes in their psyche, the native intellectual will try to make European culture his own. He will not be content to get to know Rabelais and Diderot, Shakespeare and Edgar Allan Poe. He will bind them to his intelligence as closely as possible. And there's like six sentences of French shit. Yeah, and I'm like, just I, skip that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't fucking know what that is and I don't care. But at the moment when the nationalist parties are mobilizing, the people in the name of the national independence, the native intellectual sometimes spurns these accusations, which he suddenly feels makes him a stranger in his own land. Oh, okay. All right. I get it now. The, the translation of the stupid French shit, just in case we someone felt we were really missing something. 
The lady was not alone. She had a most respectable husband who knew how to quote Racine and Cornier, Voltaire and Rousseau, Victor Hugo and Musset, Gidey, Valere, and as many more as possible. Apparently, I don't know. Just, intellectuals want to be able to say that they know the colonizers. All of the classics. All the classics. Classics are important. Um, it is always easier to proclaim rejection than actually to reject. The intellectual who through the medium of culture has filtered into Western civilization, who has managed to become part of the body of European culture. In other words, who has exchanged his own culture for another will come to realize that the cultural matrix, which now he wishes to assume since he is anxious to appear original, can hardly supply any figureheads which will be bear comparison with those so many in number and so great in prestige of the accompanying power civilization. History, of course, though, nevertheless, written by the Westerners and to serve their purposes, will be able to evaluate from time to time certain periods of the African past. But standing face to face with his country at the present time and observing clearly and objectively the events of today throughout the continent, which he wants to make his own, the intellectual is terrified by the void, the degradation and the savagery he sees there. Now he feels that he must get away from the white culture. He must seek his culture elsewhere, anywhere at all. And if he fails to find the substance of culture and of the same grandeur and scope as displayed by the ruling power, the native intellectual will very often fall back upon the emotional attitudes and will develop a psychology which is dominated by exceptional sensitivity and susceptibility. This withdrawal, which is due to, in the first instance, to a begging of the question in his internal behavior, mechanism, and his own character, brings out, above all, a reflex and contradiction which is muscular. This is sufficient explanation of the style of those native intellectuals who decide to give expression to this phase of consciousness, which is in the process of being liberated. It is a harsh style full of images, for the image is the drawbridge which allows unconscious energies to be scattered on the surrounding meadows. It is a vigorous style, alive with rhythms, struck through and through with bursting life. It is full of color, too bronze, sun-baked, and violent. This style, which in, in in its time astonished the peoples of the West, has nothing racial about it in spite of frequent statements to the contrary. It expresses above all a hand-to-hand struggle, and it reveals the need that man has to liberate himself from a part of his being which has already contained the seeds of decay. Whether the fight is painful, quick, or inevitable, muscular action must substitute itself for concepts. Yeah, so this is when he's really getting into his psychological depths. And this Mm -hmm. is when the native is is breaking away. He was talking about becoming a native again, moving away from from being an intellectual, rejecting his European education. And uh, so this is is a little bit of a psychoanalysis where it's it's not that he's thinking in a native way or he's expressing a particular culture uh, that belongs to African people, but he's expressing the violence he's known and felt. Uh, from yeah. the oppression, uh, while he's expressing a violence of, of kind of fighting back and fighting his own tendency and finding himself. And so it's kind of a, an angry aimlessness he's, he's expressing. And, uh, so this is kind of phase two of, of where Fanat's phase one was, was, uh, you know, enlightening things like, oh, hey, we really did have a culture. Uh, we really invented all these things. Things are good. We, we weren't so bad. Now phase two is anger. It's, it's, you know, who was I? Who am I? Where am I yeah. going? You know, what have I been why am i how how do i deal with this oppression and and so now let's see where that's moving let's see indeed mr foreshadowing if in the world of poetry this movement reaches unaccustomed heights the fact remains that in the real world the intellectual often follows up a blind alley 
when at the height of his intercourse with his people, whatever they were or whatever they are, the intellectual decides to come back down into the common paths of real life. He only brings back from his adventuring formulas, which are sterile in the extreme. He sets a high value on the customs, traditions, and the appearance of his people. But his inevitable, painful experience only seems to be a banal search for ex... Exoticism. Yeah, exoticism. The sari becomes sacred, and the shoes that come from Paris or Italy are left off in favor of pampooties. While that's, I was not trying to say that word for what I am sure is a native shoe. I just the word pampooties comes out weird in my mouth. While suddenly the language of the ruling power is felt to burn your lips. Finding your fellow countrymen sometimes means in this phase to will to be a whole that one almost that one almost snuck up on me. Yeah. Uh, will to be uh, a lot of slurs coming, guys. Uh, N word, not a N word like all other N words, but a real N word, a Negro cur, just the sort of N word that the white man wants you to be. Going back to your own people means to become a dirty. I'm not going to say that because I don't know what that is. Um, it's it's a it's a slur of some sort, I'm sure. To go native as much as you can, to become unrecognizable, and to cut off those wings that before you had allowed to grow. Wow! I, all right, that paragraph snuck up on me. Yeah, that yeah. one that one came out of left field. <laughs> the native intellectual decides to make an inventory of the bad habits drawn from the colonial world, and hastens to remind everyone of the good old customs of the people. That people, which he has decided, contains all truth and goodness. The scandalized attitude with which the settlers who live in the colonial territory greet this new departure only serves to strengthen the natives' decision. When the colonialists, who had tasted the sweets of their victory over these assimilated people, realize that these men whom they considered as savage souls are beginning to fall back into the ways of the um, slur, the whole system totters. Every native won over, every native who had taken the pledge not only marks a failure for the colonial structure when he decides to lose himself and to go back to his own side, but also stands as a symbol for the uselessness and the shallowness of all the work that had been accomplished. Each native who goes back over the line is a radical condemnation of the methods and of the regime. And the native intellectual finds in this scandal, he gives rise to a justification and encouragement to preserve in the path he has persevere in the path he has chosen. If we wanted to trace in the works of the native writers the different phases which characterize this evolution, we would find spread out before us a panorama on three levels. In the first phase, the native intellectual gives proof that he has assimilated the culture of the occupying power. His writings correspond point by point with those of his opposite number in the mother country. His inspiration is European, and we can easily link up these works with definite trends in the literature of the mother country. This is the period of unqualified assimilation. We find in this literature coming from the colonies, the Parnassians, the Symbolists, and the Surrealists. In the second phase, we find the native is disturbed. He decides to remember what he is. This period of creative work approximately corresponds to that immersion which we have just described. But since the native is not part of his people, since he only has exterior relations with his people, he is content to recall their life only. Past happenings of the bygone days of his childhood will be brought up by the depths of his memory. Old legends will be reinterpreted in the light of a borrowed aestheticism and of a conception of the world which was discovered under other skies. Sometimes this literature of just before the battle is dominated by humor and by allegory, but often, too, it is symptomatic of a period of distress and difficulty, where death is experienced and discussed, too. We spew ourselves up, but already underneath, laughter can be heard. 
Finally, in the third phase, which is called the fighting phase, the native, after having tried to lose himself in the people and with the people, will, on the contrary, shake the people. Instead of according... Instead of according the people's lethargy and honored place in his esteem, he turns himself into an awakener of the people. Hence comes a fighting literature, a revolutionary literature, and a national literature. During this phase, a great many men and women who up till then would have never thought of producing a literary work now find that they find themselves in exceptional circumstances, in prison with the Maquis or on the eve of their execution, feel the need to speak to their nation to compose the sentence which expresses the heart of the people and to become the mouthpiece of a new reality in action. Mm-hmm. So now we're going to see, you know, this is their their learning experience, their their radicalization, and they've become radicalized. First, you know, they're intellectuals. They're they're drawn into the whiteness of intellectualism and, and Western culture, and maybe they, you know, figured out that that you know they were black, they were native to Africa, and and they should respect that. But it was about you know making everything respectable, you know, not not upsetting sensibilities. Everyone is is great and civilized. And then there was kind of this self awareness, like, well, wait a minute, I'm part of something I'm uncomfortable with. I'm part of something that's oppressing my people. I belong to to my people. And so he starts researching his people, but he's not really connected to the people. He's going to research history. He's going to research the past. He's going to re- rehabilitate the past as a civilized people and the past accomplishments, but he's not rehabilitating or connecting to the people that live there now. And then we start going a little groundings with my brother's style to, to borrow the, the phrase and book title from Walter Rodney. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, to, to actually become one of the people. And this is where you get revolutionaries. You know, I mean, obviously he talks about organic revolutionaries fighting, finding from the rural areas, from the dregs of the masses and the nationalism chapters. And he talks about how revolutionary parties are still necessary to lead, but they can't stay in the urban areas and keep their colonial connections. They have to break away from that and go to the people. He talked about the example of the people who've been imprisoned and are sent out to the countryside, rejected by their parties, and they find themselves cloaked by the people. This is the, these are those people as cultural leaders, as artists and authors, and they become they start creating culture that's inspiring, that's provocative, that demands revolution. And so all of a sudden they become revolutionary, you know, essentially to, to borrow a, a Russian term since we brought up the USSR a few times, uh, professional agitprop people yeah. um, to, to stir the people into action. Yeah. The, the thing that we that we all that every podcaster wants to put on their resume <laughs> <That's right. laughs> wants to put on our, our revolutionary resume that we're, we're doing some sweet <laughs> sweet algebra <laughs> the native intellectual nevertheless sooner or later will realize that you do not show proof of your nation from its culture but that you substantiate its existence in the fight which the people wage against the forces of occupation no colonial system draws its justification from the fact that the territories it dominates are culturally non-existent. You will never make colonialism blush for shame by spreading out little-known cultural treasures under its eyes. At the very moment when the native intellectual is anxiously trying to create a cultural work, he fails to realize that he is utilizing techniques and language which are borrowed from the stranger in his country. His con- he contents himself with stamping these instruments with a hallmark which he wishes to be national, but which is strangely reminiscent of exoticism. The native intellectual who comes back to his people by way of cultural achievements behaves, in fact, like a foreigner. Sometimes he has no hesitation in using a dialect in order to show his will to be as near as possible to the people. But the ideas that he expresses and the preoccupations he has taken up with have no common yardstick to measure the real situation which the men and the women of his country know. 
The cultural that the the culture that the intellectual leans toward is often no more than a stock of particular particularisms. He wishes to attach himself to the people, but instead he only catches hold of their outer garments. And these outer garments are merely the reflection of a hidden life, teeming and perpetually in motion. That extremely obvious, objectively, which seems to characterize a people is in fact only the inert, already forsaken, already forsaken result of frequent and not as always very coherent adaptations of a much more fundamental substance, which itself is continually being renewed. That run on in psychology talk all at one time. Jesus. The man of culture, instead of setting out to find this substance, will let himself be hypnotized by by these mummified fragments, which, because they are static, are in fact symbols of negation and outworn contrivances. Culture never has never the translucidity of custom. It abhors all simplification. In its essence, it is opposed to custom, for custom is always the deterioration of culture. The desire to attach oneself to tradition or bring abandoned traditions to life again does not only mean going against the current of history, but also opposing one's own people. Now, that is an interesting sentence that I hope some people have some debate for. It is not me and Nathan's place to debate that sense because that is a no. that is a, 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 a kind of a heavy one. No. Yeah. So, again, going to read that one more time just for, for if anyone wants dialogue around it. The desire to attach oneself to tradition or bring abandoned traditions to life again does not only mean going against the current of history, but also opposing one's own people. Yeah. And now remember, Fanon is uh, he's a little bit in between some movements in Africa, too. So there are some modernist movements that happen there. And of course, you know, there's some Pan-African movements and he has some issues and some agreements with with different ones. So now you can see him a little bit here borrowing from the modernism, but I don't know how fully committed he is to that and how much we should go, okay, well, let's take this in as a critique uh, so that everyone can evolve in it and how much we should go, you know, Fanon is, is, is a modernist and do you agree with that or not is completely contained in the modernism rather than in Fanon. Um, so again, you know, that's not a conversation we want to have, but that's a heavy sentence that we were going to breeze by otherwise. So I, I, I just want to give it its due diligence no, for sure. and then move on. Absolutely. When a people undertakes an armed struggle or even a political struggle against a relentless colonialism, the significance of tradition changes. All that has made up the technique of passive resistance in the past may, during this phase, be radically condemned. In an underdeveloped country, during the period of struggle, traditions are fundamentally unstable and are shot through by centrifugal tendencies. This is why the intellectual often runs the risk of being out of date. The peoples who have carried on the struggle are more and more impervious to demagogy, and those who wish to follow them reveal themselves as nothing more than common opportunists. In other words, latecomers. In the sphere of plastic arts, for example, the native artist who wishes at whatever cost to create a national work of art shuts himself in a stereotyped reproduction of details. These artists who have nevertheless thoroughly studied modern techniques and who have taken part in the main trends of contemporary painting and architecture turn their backs on foreign culture, deny it, and set out to look for a true national culture, setting great store on what they consider to be the constant principles of national art. But these people forget that the forms of thought which it feeds on, together with modern techniques of information, language, and dress, have dialectically reorganized the people's intelligences, and that the constant principles which acted as safeguards during the colonial period are now undergoing extremely radical changes. 
The artist who has decided to illustrate the truths of the nation turns paradoxically toward the past and away from actual events. What he ultimately intends to embrace are, in fact, the castoffs of thought, its shell and corpses, a knowledge which has been stabilized once and for all. But the native intellectual who wishes to create an authentic work of art must realize that the truths of a nation are, in the first place, its realities. He must go on until he has found the seething pot out of which the learning of the future will emerge. (laughs) Before independence, the native painter was insensible to the national scene. He set a high value on non-figurative art or more often specialized in still lives. After independence, his anxiety to rejoin his people will continue find him to the most detailed representations of reality. This is representative art, which has no internal rhythms, an art which is serene and immobile, evocative not of life, but of death. Enlightened circles are in ecstasies when confronted with this inner truth, which is so well expressed. But we have the right to ask if this truth is in fact a reality, and if it is not already outwardly outworn and denied, called in question by the epoch through which the people are treading out their path toward history. In the realm of poetry, we may establish the same facts. After the period of assimilation characterized by rhyming poetry, the poetic tom-toms rhythms break through. This is a poetry of revolt, but it is also descriptive and analytical poetry. The poet ought, however, to understand that nothing can replace the reasoned irrevocable taking up of arms on the people's side. Let us quote this guy one more time. We're not going to because it's poetry. We don't do poetry. (laughs) The native poet who is preoccupied with creating a national work of art and who is determined to describe his people fails in his aim for he is not yet ready to make that fundamental concession that Desparde speaks of the French poet René Char shows his understanding of the difficulty when he reminds us that the poem emerges out of a subject subjective imposition and an objective choice. A poem is the assembling and moving together of determining original values and in contemporary relation with someone that these circumstances brings to the front. Oh, man, I hope we're almost done talking about poetry. (laughs) Yes, the first duty of the native poet, not yet apparently, is to see clearly the people he has chosen as the subject of his work of art. He cannot go forward resolutely until unless he first realizes the extent of his estrangement from them. We have taken everything from the other side, and the other side gives us nothing unless by a thousand detours we swing finally round in their direction. Unless by ten thousand wiles and a hundred thousand tricks they manage to draw us toward them, to seduce us, and to imprison us, taking means in nearly every case being taken. Thus, it is not enough to try to free oneself by replicating proclamations and denials. It is not enough to try to get back to the people in that past out of which they have already emerged. Rather, we must join them in that fluctuating movement which they are just giving a shape to, and which, as soon as it has started, will be the signal for everything to be called into question let there be no mistake about it it is to this zone of occult instability where the people dwell that we must come and it is there that our souls are crystallized and that our perceptions of our lives are transfused with light now this is making sense of something that is used since the beginning of the book that was a little confusing is is he used rhythm and he used this in black skin and white mask too rhythm as an allegory for culture and now you're starting to I mean, I'm certainly starting to feel an understanding of why he used that word centrally uh, as his main proxy for culture, because culture has a pace to it. It moves along. It must be kept because it molds around essentially material conditions, essentially life. And that's what he's saying. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, he's not saying that that giving into tradition is is bad. He's saying it's useless in a period of armed struggle because life is changing so quickly. The realities are changing so quickly. And so. 
in a period of education. And remember, his phase one was disseminating the past, was was rehabilitating the past, showing that there's nothing to be ashamed of in their past. That is the real valid step one of the scholars. But once it's guns in hand, the culture is changing so fast. You start talking about the past. You know, you're you're just sounding like the opportunists and and the nat. Remember that you talk about the nationalist parties. Think about what we've accomplished rather than thinking about their reality now and how it's adapting, how it's changing. You start to get that, you know, 30 Rock, how do you do fellow kids feel to you? <laughs> you know, um, so, you know, now you get the idea of rhythm. You have to pace with it. You have to keep up with this revolution and be immersed in the people and where you are disconnected. You can't just say, I'm disconnected. OK, I did the best I could with my art. You have to understand where and how and how much you're disconnected and adapt to close the gap or you're not truly expressing national culture. And that's about as good a summation as I could get for that uh, particular little check in the section, chapter four. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're gonna we're gonna pick this up again next week. Uh, yeah. That being said, um, one thank you for for taking us into your new year. Uh, it is it is officially it is officially January first of twenty twenty when this episode is when you're getting this in your ear holes at least. So yeah, yeah, yeah. that is the earliest you could possibly be listening to it. You if will you wake up hungover to alert that this episode is out. Yes, yes. If we've done our job correctly, you will. Otherwise, it'll come out at like eleven thirty, and Nathan will be hungover. <laughs> we'll, we'll figure it out. Um, no, but it's uh, uh, thank again. Thank you for it, mm-hmm. it's bizarre to think we're going into what year. This is the start of year two. The second, the the seconding. Uh, I don't know. Well, calendar year. This would. Be the third because we've done this a little over a year. But we started in like That's November. That's so weird. We started in November of 2018. So. That's so fucking. Yeah, weird this now. will be the start of our third calendar year. Yeah, look at us go. Yeah. Um. But yeah. So thank thanks for hanging out. Um. Uh. We don't have resolutions because fuck that shit. We're just gonna keep doing this. We're gonna keep doing this. Uh, my resolution is we won't miss a week of this shit, and we haven't yet. So yeah, hell yeah, hell yeah. Continuing continuing forward on that on that fun trend. Um. But uh, it, you know where to find us. Uh, we're at Mark's Madness Pod on twitter and we are marksmadnesspod at gmail.com if you would like to prefer to email us Mm -hmm. um our p.o box should be in the show note description so if you want to mail us something for whatever reason go ahead and uh and do it that way Mm -hmm. um and david anything else you can think of that's about all i got right now i think i don't don't think there are any there are no pending other places you can see us but if they are you'll find them on we'll yell about them on twitter occasionally i uh i i now stream video games with people and play Overwatch on the internet because that's a thing that happens apparently. So if you want to watch me be bad at Overwatch, you can absolutely just pay attention to Twitter and I'll tweet out when I'm doing that. Yeah, meanwhile, you won't find me there because I'm the old man who yells at clouds. Exactly, exactly. But that all being said, we will see you all next week. Bye. Bye.